0: Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. No one likes being told what to do. We dislike it so much that we have come to idolize rebellion as a moral good. We long for a world without authority, criticism, or the pressure necessary to change how we live. When a teacher rightly judges our child, we shelter the student and malign the instructor. When our manager confronts us with a problem at work, we cringe, scrambling to show that we have already learned our lesson. Why? Because we want the criticism to stop. But a wise manager does not stop. He or she delivers the message in full, repeating it as often as necessary to help the employee change their behavior. But in order for any of this to work, the teacher, the parent, the student, the manager, and the employee must all, first and foremost, place their trust in the wisdom being offered. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is tireless in his efforts to train the disciples to trust in the Lord's wisdom. He does not reason with them or attempt to justify himself, nor does he try to package the message in an appealing way. On the contrary, he keeps repeating and simultaneously following his Father's commandments. The more resistance he encounters, the more persistent his message. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. You're listening to the Bible as literature.
1: This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton.
0: And you're listening to episode 183 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we heard about the blind man on the side of the road throwing himself at the feet of Jesus, and then the Lord commanding him, Go, your trust has made you well, your faith has made you well. And he went and followed Jesus on the path. And now, immediately at the beginning of chapter 11, we see where the path leads. It's the path to the kingdom, but in Mark, the path to the kingdom is the path to the crucifixion.
1: And Jesus has already explained twice, not once, but twice that he is going to have to suffer. The son of man is going to have to suffer. We know that this is where this is headed. We might not want it to head this way. The disciples certainly don't want it to head this way, but this is where it's going to go. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near
0: the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. He sent two so that there would be a witness. At the beginning of Mark, we heard that you go not one, but you go two, always so that there's a witness, someone who's there, to make sure that the mission is accomplished. And that's why he's sending two here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it and immediately he will send it back here.
1: He is telling the disciples to go and speak in the name of the Lord. They are teachers in training. They have to become teachers and speak with authority on behalf of this teaching. So the fact that they are going to Bethany, the house of the poor, they're not entering into Jerusalem as kings to get power. They are going first to the house of the poor. When the disciples ask him that they sit at his right and his left hand, he says, I don't know. But when someone comes out of poverty and out of weakness, he then says, what do you want? And he grants it to him. So the play between the powerful and the weak, the rich and the poor, mean everything here. And if you've been following along in the past 10 chapters, you know that this is what Jesus is doing. And could Jesus be any more explicit than saying the first will be last and the last will be first? Should it surprise you then that he's going to the poor first before he goes to the rich? Hopefully at this point, it's not going to be surprising to you.
0: At Bethpage, which is the house of unripe figs, which has other implications as we read further, the other important thing about verse 3 is that It again reflects what you were saying about them being student teachers. It reminds me of the Palm Sunday procession where there's a zillion people and the procession is moving slow and it's hot outside and we would like to be done with the service before 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The priest sends one of the altar servers to tell the people to move. Now an altar server typically is a young person who's a little bit insecure The priest then has to give him specific instructions. If the people give you a blank stare or don't respond, you tell them, Father said, move it. The procession has to move or we're going to be here all afternoon. You can't go and just say, oh, would you please move? I mean, verse three has that feel, Richard. If anyone says to you why you're doing this, don't say, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure if we're supposed to. You tell them the Lord has need of it. I'm not asking you for the donkey. And don't worry about it. He'll give it back. So just give them the donkey
1: because I have business to do. You're functioning as the slave of Jesus. At least for one moment, he can make you act like a slave. And you go and fetch this for him. And you don't speak in your own name. We have need of this. No, the Lord has need of this. Again, if you're a soldier,
0: you can understand verse 3. Because if your commander sends you to do something, you can't be a mouse about it. And if anyone questions you, you'd say the commander sent me, step aside. That's the idea. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke
1: to them just as Jesus had told them and they gave them permission. This is where Jesus is trying to teach them trust in the word because Jesus is handing them a check, and they're not sure if the people are going to cash it where they're going. And he says, don't worry. Once they see it's the Lord's check, they'll cash it. Unless
0: you grew up in Morocco in one of the stories Richard keeps telling about the boy who was sent to the grocery store by his father and who had to memorize the list by heart. And listen to his father say, and when you see the cashier, if she says this, then do that. And if they offer you this much, you do this. That's how Jesus is talking. It's exactly how he's talking. That's why the Middle East is such a beautiful context for understanding these stories. Because this reality was easily accessible to someone in late antiquity because this is how fathers speak to their sons. Now we don't talk to our sons. We don't give them work to do because we're afraid that it'll hurt their feelings. He is saying, son, this is what you do. You go here, and if this person says this, you tell them I sent you, and you do it this way, and this will be
1: the outcome. How do I know? Because I'm your father. That's the idea. He's still got some training to do for these kids because they still think that they have a say. They still think that they have something to offer. They still think that they have a teaching that they're going to offer to Jesus. Jesus needs to just tell them, this is what you need to do. So this is not for us to ooh and ah over. This is for us to see what it means to obey and do what Jesus says. If the disciples can go and get a cult, hopefully they can do some of the difficult things that Jesus asked them to do. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on
0: it. And he sat on it and many spread their coats in the road and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. And I can't help but think once again of the blind beggar who was the first to say, have mercy on me and to throw his cloak aside as he fell before Jesus.
1: Yes, the people, the crowds are acting correctly, but they're bowing down to Jesus, who they're saying is the king. Are they willing to bow down when he no longer looks like a king, when he's on the cross? Are they willing to bow down to the one who looks least like a king, a beggar asking for mercy, a blind person asking for mercy? Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting,
0: Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest.
1: If they believe that Jesus is going to use his power like the ruler of the Gentiles, as he talked about in the last chapter, he's going to come to subjugate and wield his authority over others. Do they believe that he is the son of David because he's come to lord his power over others, just like another Gentile king? Or is he going to function as the emissary of the Lord who brings Torah in weakness and meekness, where the first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after
0: looking around at everything, he left Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. He came to the temple, which is the traditional seat of state power. Remember, Forget the separation of church and state, not because you agree or disagree with it, but because it was non-functional in late antiquity. It's not that there was a religious institution and there was a state institution. In the world of the Old Testament, they were the same institution. The king was the son of the gods and the high priest. That was the title of Caesar, the son of the gods. That was the title of all of the pharaohs, the son of such and such a god. Jesus came to the temple and looked around, and what did he do? He left, just like in Ezekiel, which means that his kingship and his throne is not bound to the temple of men, built with stone.
1: He enters into Jerusalem, he comes into the temple, looks around, turns around, and goes, where? To the house of the poor, and takes the 12 with them. Since it was already late, and you know, I just realized, On the one hand, it's late. We automatically assume that it was late afternoon, it was five or six, he needed to get home and have a nice dinner and that sort of thing. But the last time he was told that it was too late, that's when the disciples told him he had to feed people because it was too late for them to go and get food. But here, it was already late, meaning it was already too late for Jerusalem and the temple. He left Jerusalem and the temple, why? Because there was no repentance, it was too late, for Jerusalem and the temple to save themselves. They were going to be eliminated. They were going to be destroyed. Better off to be in the house of the poor rather than the center of power. If you've ever been to Delphi in Greece, you can see where each of the city-states have their section, and that's where they had their treasury. Why? Because you had to bring your sacrifices to the temple, and so you kept riches there close by, so it could function like a bank. People could send their money to the temple, and then when they needed a sacrifice, they would buy a sacrifice with that money, the local priests. So it was exactly as you say, Father, it was a center of worldly power as well as spiritual power. They weren't separate in the ancient world. So if anyone recognizes this, it's Jesus, because he left these centers of earthly power and turned around and went to the house of the poor, and that's where he went with the 12. So again, will the 12 understand it? I do not have a lot of trust that these disciples are going to cash the check that Jesus gave them. If the 12
0: understood it, then Paul would not have to explain in Romans chapter two that you were just as unfruitful as the Gentiles and you continue to be as unfruitful as the Gentiles. The 12 here meaning the tribes of Israel. This is the whole point. You're not producing offspring. If they understood, they would have produced offspring. There's still hope that they will. But right now, Jesus still has to keep telling them how to preach and showing them that they need to preach and showing them what the outcome of the preaching is in not just word, but in deed. And that is what the crucifixion is all about.
1: It's where the rubber hits the road. I think the only saving grace in this chapter so far for the disciples is that the only words they've spoken are the ones that Jesus put in their mouths so they could get the colt. I think that's the only thing that's given them any kind of saving grace. And of
0: course, that's the least interesting to intellectuals. But for people like you and me, it's the most important part. Because we understand that this text is not about fancy ideas. This text is about exactly the thing that modern man hates, being told what to do by a parent or an authority figure. It's a big thing in scripture and the sad part is that in the ancient world where people understood they had to listen to authority figures, scripture still had to push them because even though they knew they should listen, they still weren't listening because they were stubborn. In our day, it's not just that people are stubborn and therefore rebellious. It's that they've made out of rebellion a new religion and they consider themselves scriptural because they're anti-authority. It's nuts, but this is the situation we're in and we're called to preach and we trust in the seed of the gospel of Mark. And so we keep doing this podcast.
1: 183 times so far, we've sowed the seed. We'll keep going. Thanks very much, Dr. Bentley. Thank you for You've me. just heard the Bible as literature